If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 26. That's where we are. Um, But before we do, I I just want to ask you a question. And I know it's going to sound a little rhetorical. Um, I guess it's one of those things where I don't expect you to kind of raise your hand, stand up, and speak out. But I want you to think through this question. How are you doing? You've walked into the presence of the Almighty. Uh, We're about to open up his word, and we're going to have it instruct us. At the beginning of our worship service, it's, it's not too uncommon for us to say... Listen, now as we gather together and as we, we get ready to sing praises to God, um, man, how are you guys doing? And let's make sure that our mind and our attention is focused on him and we can recognize who he is and make much of him. And, and then we begin our service. Um, but Father, uh, but God's plan for us as our, as our heavenly father is not just that we begin our time of prayer and our time of worship thinking about him, but now as we open up his word, Let's be honest, there are lots of obstacles, lots of struggles, maybe even some successes in your life this this week that have got you distracted. Are you ready to hear from the word of God this morning in a way where your heart and your mind is receptive to that truth? And so it's it's not just in in our preparation for singing songs but now to apply God's word to our lives. Um, is your heart ready? Is your mind ready? And, and the one thing that I, I, I just, I think it's so critical as a church we acknowledge is we don't ask you to leave it out there. I, I think it is inappropriate. I think it is actually rather, first of all, I think it's impossible. But I think it's impossible because God didn't make us to leave our problem somewhere else and then enter into his presence. Now bring it. Like bring it, bring all, your, bring all your joys, bring all your struggles, bring all the, the, the obstacles that are in your life and you bring them here and then from here in light of God's word, we gain his perspective on our lives. And so that's what we're gonna be doing. That's what our attempt is. So in Matthew chapter 26, we're gonna be beginning in verse 69 and then going up through the first 10 verses of chapter 27. And this is an interesting text. It it begins with Peter's outright denial and it ends with Judas killing himself. That's our text for this morning. I know we could have extended it and just kept going on and, and then dealt with the death of Jesus and then kept going on and deal with his resurrection. But in order to divide it up so that we can understand how all of these things fit together into a greater story of God's plan and God's purpose, sometimes it's good to end at verse 10. Sometimes it's good to end in a, in a situation where God is still at work, kind of like you. God is still at work in your life. God is still at work in your struggles, in your obstacles, in your pain. I know it's hard to see beyond it. I know your heart might be stuck. But God's plan continues forward. And so this is how we approach the text this morning. Now, Peter's denial and then Judas's uh, betrayal and, and eventual uh, taking of his own life, th- those are some pretty uh, big, big, big texts here. And it can be easy for us to become distracted. And so I, I think it's just going to be good for me to label at the very beginning before we, before we learn from our text to just say what this text is not about. And I'll tell you, it's not about Peter and the denial of Jesus. 
It's not about his denial. I know that we can make it about Peter, but it's not about Peter. Peter is part of a bigger narrative, part of a bigger story, and Peter is not even the main actor in it. So something else is happening. So don't get too distracted by Peter's failure. It's not about Judas. I know Judas has a part to play in this, but sometimes we can become just infatuated and so mesmerized, so drawn into the the very difficult figure of Judas Iscariot that sometimes our, our minds get stuck there. We begin to ask questions the text isn't even trying to answer. Judas has had kind of an interesting um, uh, kind of a perception within church history. For a number of years, he was vilified. Um, He was the betrayer, and he was evil in the the drawings of him. It was just a very dark figure with distorted facial features. Why? Because obviously, as the betrayer, he was evil. But, you know, just wait, and things change, and Um, Lately, over the last few hundred years, he's almost become like a sympathetic, tragic figure. Plays and books have been written about him as this uh, misunderstood, confused, had the best of intentions, it just went a little sideways. And, And by the way, the Gospels don't give us that picture, the Gospels don't give us that understanding of who he is, but... Um, It is just so popular right now to look at the tragic figures and to make them the point. But I'll be honest, Judas isn't the point of this text. I think there's things that we can learn from him, but he's not the center. Now, the events around Judas' final day obviously really do kind of grab our attention. And um, this text is not about suicide, even though it exists within the text. Like I know our minds can then be around what happens to a person. Is that the unforgivable sin? Is that why Judas is alive? I mean, what, what about is it? And I want to say, listen, the Bible doesn't speak directly about this issue of suicide. Um, but we, I don't want to get too overwhelmed by that aspect of this text. Because as important, as crucial as it is, this text doesn't say everything that needs to be said about that. So don't let that distract you. And it's not about predestination. Sometimes when we look at these figures like Peter and Judas who were so committed and so dedicated and then we see in these moments where they just fall apart, we just begin to wonder, man, are we all doomed for this? Like is this, is this how it was all destined to be? We begin to look at texts like this as almost this fatal determinism and what's the point? Actually, that's not the purpose of this text either. You need to remember that this text means so much more. So what is this text about? If you, if you understand it as Matthew is writing it with the bigger story holding it together, not letting any one of these one things kind of jump further than they're designed to land. Here's what the text is about. The text at its very core is this, that the prophecies of Jesus concerning his death and what that symbolizes were all fulfilled. All of the statements that Jesus made, Peter, you will deny me. Judas, you will betray me. They find their fulfillment, which means this, that God, however he organizes things, doesn't leave loose ends around. I know your life might even seem like that currently, right now, it is unraveling. God doesn't leave aspects of our lives or events that are happening in our lives undone. 
And Jesus was very, very clear. This is why I have come. This is what I am doing. The angel was very, very clear. This is why Jesus has come. This is what Jesus is doing. Matthew really tries to underline this quite a bit in the statement. And this is what was fulfilled in the prophets of uh, the scripture of the prophets. Matthew keeps drawing back to this. Why? So that we can see in Jesus the fulfillment of the plan of God. Now, now how does that change my life? It basically provides substance to a life that can sometimes feel like it is completely out of control. Like, I don't know where I've come from. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know why I'm getting up in the morning and I don't know why I'm sleeping at night. I just, it's not making sense to me. But in Jesus Christ and in the message of Jesus Christ, what you get is you get completion. You get fulfillment. And and here's the amazing part. Even in the midst of our brokenness, God is not undone. I really believe that's a message that the church needs to hear. Even in the deepest of our brokenness, God is not done. The text goes like this. Verse 69 of Matthew chapter uh, 26. Actually, before I, before I read that, wait, I, I want to I show you that statement in, uh, in, in, in a few verses previously. Look at verse 56. You're already in Matthew 26. Look at, look at verse 56 of that chapter. What does it say? All of this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. That's a great verse to underline. All of this has taken place so that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And the fulfillment continues. Verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside of the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you are also with Jesus the Galilean. Were you not? I mean, this is her her statement or her accusation. Now you need to understand a little bit about the geography of the land. You have in the area of Jerusalem, you have that, that place which is the religious hotbed, that place where the temple exists, the, that, that place where uh, you, you have the greatest concentration of those people who believe they are following the way of, of Judaism uh, the best that they possibly can. Um, they're, the, they're the city folk. And they're the ones that, that really have been the most against the teachings of Jesus Christ. Whenever Jesus turns and sets his face towards Jerusalem, the disciples get nervous because it's difficult there. It's complicated there. Um, we're, we're getting ready, actually, for another trip to Israel. Uh, that'll be our third one. We're going to be going next May or June, Lord willing. And we even kind of plan our trip around the geography of, 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 of Israel. We, we land in Tel Aviv, and then we travel to Jerusalem, and for five days, we spend time in the city and, and going to the Temple Mount. And it, it has its own feel to it. And after spending five days there and seeing the old city and um, what, you know, we, it's so funny because in, in Jerusalem, you'll see something, you'll say, well, when was this built? And they'll say, oh yeah, well, this was actually built like in 1200. And you're like, oh, a new building. And it's, it's, it's 800 years old, but it seems like a new building. But we can go all the way back and see the original structures of King David and the old ancient city, way, way, way back to the time of King David. And then after we're done there, we go down south and we get an opportunity to see this incredible place called En Gedi. And it is a place where this oasis springs out of the desert. We spend a couple of days uh, on the Dead Sea, uh, just kind of getting a look at the Judean uh, wilderness and the desert. We see the, the great fortress of Masada. And then we travel north so that we can go to 
the Galilee. And we, we go to places like, um, uh, like Capernaum, and we go to places like Nazareth, and we get to see, and it's, it's completely different than Jerusalem. Jerusalem, everything is brown, it's like desert. And up north, everything is green and it's lush. The Sea of Galilee is this, this beautiful blue lake. And, and there you are at, the, at, the, at this wonderful place. And you can even see just the, the difference between these places. And this, this, this little girl recognizes this. She sees something different in Peter and she says, hey, you're, you're, you're with that Galilean. You're a Galilean and you're with that Galilean. And he says in verse 70, but he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth, you know, that place that is up north. And again, he denied it with an oath, I swear on a stack of Bibles kind of stuff. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up to Peter and said, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. Like you're, you're, we, we can tell you're not from here. Uh, occasionally I have that, that question brought up to me, where are you from? And uh, I say, oh, you, you, you kind of picked up from my accent. Yeah, I don't even know where it is. It sounds a little bit different. And then I say, I'm from Canada. And they ask me to say words like about and out and sorry and those kinds of things. And they go, oh, now, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now, now I hear it. What? My, my accent, I speak English. At least I try to speak English. My accent betrays me. I was preaching when I was in graduate school uh, doing a revival in Shreveport, Louisiana. And uh, somebody came up to me afterwards. I was done speaking. And they just said, where are you? Are you a northerner? And I said, am I a northerner? No, that's a dumb question because, man, you have no idea how northern I am. I'm from so north that we look at North Dakota as a balmy state of, uh, of, uh, of, 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 of wonderful weather. So that, that's how north I'm from. Our accent betrays us. Peter's accent betrays him. Verse 74, and then he began, this is Peter, then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. Now, that swearing is not a list of bad words, okay? What he is swearing is, hey, if you don't believe me, I'm going to swear on my mother's grave. I'm going to swear on, I'm going to actually curse. Now, the idea of, of blessing and cursing is really big in Jewish culture. It basically opens them up to stand before God and say, if what I'm saying to you is not true, may God curse me. May God curse my family. May God curse my grandchildren. And they actually believed that in a very real way, God would do exactly that. I mean, it really kind of sets up what's about to happen because Peter is going to swear upon himself curses if what he says is not true. I do not know the man. Problem is he's lying. He knows him. He's been following him for a number of years. He actually spent, just not that long ago, swearing and promising before Jesus that he would follow him all the way to death. Here he is trying to disassociate himself as much as he can from the one he'd been following for about three years. And immediately, it says, a rooster crowed, just like Jesus promised. Jesus, or Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Like, I swear I will never do it again. Like, I promise I will never, ever, 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 ever do it again. 
they walked into my office and uh, I could tell that it was a big deal. Not a lot of people knew the struggle that he was going through, but um, obviously it came out and they're trying to figure out how to put their lives back together. Trust had been lost. And the addiction that he was dealing with was of such a, um, such a deep nature that I just, I knew that we were going to spend a lot of time trying to figure this out. And I, I could just tell that he, he felt that. I had to ask the question, were you convicted or were you caught? Was this something that was stirring inside of you and you just had to get it out? Or was this something and they, everybody found out, now you're embarrassed? And he said, I, I was caught. This, this addiction was, 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 was so painful and was so difficult um, that I could just tell it was going to take a lot of time and a lot of rebuilding, more than just what his tears could provide. More than just what his oath-taking and his promising was ever going to make happen. And I began to think about, wow, it's, it's, it's one of those moments and it's one of those occasions where I understand why people love to say to me afterwards when I'm ever brought into situations like this, they love to ask this question, do you think they're sorry? Like, do you think they're, they're truly repentant for what they did? Or do you think they just feel bad because they're caught? And I love to remind people, like, you do know I'm just Jim. I'm not God. I don't know. I mean, the tears do seem to indicate something, right? Like the sobbing indicates something. The, the profound, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. They seem to indicate something, right? And here Peter is, deeply broken. He's been caught. He's been convicted simultaneously. Now, where do you go? Obviously, promising and then double promising that you won't fail is, is, is not going to cut it. And it's, it's very interesting that it's in moments like this, I, I can really understand what he's talking about because I've been there. I know what it's like to feel really, really sorry for things that I've done. And I know what it's like to, to just want to be different. And, and, and next time, it is going to be different. But time and circumstance has an amazing ability to just wear us down. Peter had been with Jesus for three years. Seen Lazarus raised from the dead. Seen people receive their sight. He's watched 5,000 people be fed. He stood on a mountaintop. He's, he's seen um, Elijah and Moses appear with Jesus all in their transfigured state. And when push comes to shove, he tries to disassociate himself from the one where somewhere deep inside of him he knows that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. But right now he can't come to grips with that. And he takes the easy way out and he takes the shortcut. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to be in one circumstance and to just think, man, I will never fail in this area of my life again. Like I'm so deeply convicted, I'm so deeply sorrowful inside of me that I know it's going to be different. I, I looked at this woman who was sitting across my desk and I said, you do know that there will probably be a lifetime of forgiving someone who has this struggle. Not just one time. No, 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 you don't understand, he says. You don't get it, I really am sorry. No, I, I don't doubt it. I just know that sorrow and that weeping bitterly only can do so much, but time and circumstance 
has a way of changing me. The text continues, it's not just Peter that's broken. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, who is the governor. They, they realized that, okay, we're, we're not allowed to bring this man, this capital offense we cannot bring against him. And the capital offense is the fact that he claims to be a Caesar. He claims to be king. And so unlike Stephen, who blasphemes in one sense, and they can just kill him, they don't desire to have that kind of a, uh, of a weight hanging over their heads with Jesus' popularity. And so what do they do? They want the Romans, the ones, the, the charge is not just blasphemy, but it's going to be treason against Caesar. And so they're looking for a way out. And Judas, who was there uh, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and just like Peter had seen all of the miracles, he wasn't a denier, he was the betrayer, and he is about to have his wake-up moment. Verse 3 says, And when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders. Now, we don't know exactly when this happens. To me, it happens like right in the middle of the night, but commentators make out the fact that uh, they really try to highlight the fact we really don't know when this happens. We, We don't know that this happens exactly as it's written chronologically, but he sees that Jesus is condemned. Maybe Jesus has already been killed, And he comes to this realization, he comes to this understanding, and he says in verse 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And their answer, what is that to us? See to it yourself, meaning, hey, that's your problem. Take care of it yourself. What What are we supposed to do about that? And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and he hanged himself. But the chief priests, you know, they're religious people, Taking the pieces of silver said, because now, now they want to get real religious again. That's how you can really tell that there is a religiosity that exists within them without having the kind of transparency and the openness to be real with what God's ultimate plan is. They, they can look the outward part, but inside they're full of dead men's bones. Be very careful. You do realize it was religious people in pursuit of religious ideas who killed Jesus. And notice what they say. I find this fascinating. It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, these 30 pieces of silver, since it is blood money. They cannot escape the truth. They cannot escape. The condemnation that stands upon them, they recognize what the money is. So they took counsel and they bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this very day. Then was fulfilled. You see Matthew still driving at it? Again, his point isn't, hey, let's all feel sorry for Judas, or let's all hate Judas. No, Judas is one more um, tragic, broken, lost soul in the midst of all of this. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me, even in this. God's hand, God's plan is in control directing the steps of all things. 
so that we would know that Jesus truly is who he says he is. So, so what do we do with these tragic examples? Where, where do we go from here before we just resolve it and say, yeah, but the good news is Jesus rose from the grave. It, it would be good for us to take a look so that we can find some application for our own lives in comparing the lives of both Peter and Judas. Both of them, by the way, were disciples of Jesus Christ. Both of them had been to church camp. Both of them had given their life to Jesus Christ. Both of them had just promised when they went to university, I'm sure they were involved in some campus ministry. Both Peter and Judas kind of grew up. In the, by the way, that was kind of a metaphor, kind of an example. Okay, good. Just want to make sure, wow, they went to university? I didn't know that. No, that is kind of, they both walked through the same circumstances. And what's very interesting is by all account, it seemed like everything was very, very similar. And when push came to shove, both Peter and Judas did not take a faithful route, but took an unfaithful one. And Judas betrayed Jesus, and Peter denied him. But the the comparison or the similarities don't end there. Both of them come to a realization that what they did was completely wrong. And that is where the similarities stop. See, I want to ask this question, what can we learn from Peter and Judas's temptation and failure, but more than that, their response? And the one thing that we can learn from, from their example is this, uh, look, looking at how they play out the, the, the final events of their life, when you look at Peter, Peter obviously fails Jesus, Peter obviously comes to an understanding, he weeps bitterly, but the next time we see Peter, you know where he is? He's with the other disciples. I don't know how you handle brokenness, but when I get caught, and when, when, when people begin to know the, the real truth about me and my failures, I just, I just need to get away. I mean, ordinarily, I like to just be with people, but not when the truth about me gets out. I just want to kind of be by myself. Um, I, just, I don't want anybody else around me. It just makes me feel, you know, uncomfortable. I just want to run, and I just want to hide. Now listen, I I get that every one of us, to varying degrees, need time, most likely even alone, to process the deep and difficult failures that exist in our lives. But I, I don't think it's just an accident that as we watch this play out, the next time we see Peter, he's with the rest of them. So what happened, Peter? Man, I'm in the courtyard and this girl comes up and she begins to talk about it and, and, and I'm sure he tells it much like Matthew records it. Maybe Matthew got his information from Peter. Yeah, like I don't want to admit it. I don't even want to say, hey, but at least it all worked out right now. I'm just really, really embarrassed. But it happened just like Jesus said it would and I totally denied him. Tears still streaming down his face. But where is he? He's with the rest of them. I mean, I, I do. I think that is absolutely critical. It's, a, it's incredible. When you find out the reality of yourself and other people begin to find out the truth about you, what do you do and where do you go? Judas, the, the, the word that he uses here, if you look at it, look at verse three. I had to go back and, and do some rooting around on this particular word. It says, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver. Um, you gotta be careful making too much of this word, but it's not the word, change, change his mind. It's not the word for repent. Now, it's, it's not an empty word, though. It, the word is actually sometimes used in a good sense to change your mind and to come to an understanding. 
But it appears that what Judas figured out was he figured out what it was wrong, but his answer appears to be, man, I'm going to try to make this right by going back and getting rid of the money. And when it just seems like it's just going nowhere, his answer is what? I'm out of here. Like I'm done. I know it's somewhat speculative, but I do believe it is safe to say that there have been a number of people that have done some incredibly grievous things against God and against his name who find a path of repentance and restoration. Peter's one of those. But Judas's answer is, I need to be alone, and he is so overwhelmed, he just ends it. You could almost call the sermon the tale of two disciples. One who understands that his brokenness is not the end. His denial is not the end. His failure is not the end. The obstacle that stands before you this morning is not the end. Make sure you're very, very careful in your deepest sense of brokenness where you turn. And God wants you to turn to him. God wants you to turn to your brothers and sisters in Christ who aren't going to pat you on the back and say, hey, everything is fine, don't worry about it, we're all human. But who say, listen, like I know you failed. But welcome to the association of brokenness. Welcome to a group of failures who understand that we, uh, with the best of our intentions, with the I swear on a stack of Bibles, with the I'll never do it again, do it again group. I think there's something really profound that we can learn from this text in regards to how Peter finds restoration and Judas just finds sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow. But I don't think this text is actually designed to try to have us leave the comparison between Peter and Judas. I think it actually, the, the, the subplot runs a lot deeper. I think what we are actually supposed to be doing, the way that Matthew's arranged his material, is to look at the comparison between Peter and Jesus. That's the two that I think he is trying to draw the greatest attention to. After all, both of them were kind of on trial. Both of them were asked to make some kind of a, a claim in terms of who they are and what they stood for, and Jesus passed. And Peter failed. I mean, the comparison between Jesus and Peter... Peter and Judas, they kind of line up all the way and then in the end they go in different directions but it seems like from the very beginning Peter and Jesus are on a different page. From the very beginning when Peter is confronted, he bails. I mean, at, at no point in time in his entire examination does he ever tell the truth about his association with Jesus Christ and every step of the way as Jesus is captured in the garden, is brought before Caiaphas, is brought before Pilate. At no point does he ever vary in his testimony. He is faithful all the way through. And so the question becomes, what can we gain? What can we learn? What can we understand from Jesus's faithfulness? And the answer is everything. I understand why people who are in their brokenness, like my, my friend that is sitting in my office who is dealing with his addiction, one of the places he loves to go are with other people who understand that brokenness, who understand that addiction. 
One of the places that that he likes to go is with like-minded, same circumstantial people that they can come together and say, do you know what it's like? And I know what it's like. Do you know what it's like? Yeah, I know what it's like. And let's stay together in the company of the broken. Hear me, there is some tremendous value in that. I get it. But sometimes we need something beyond that. I would even challenge you in your own heart, in your own mind, as much as you desire to find likeness in those around us, that you will find that without an ultimate answer, you will just find nothing more but an association of brokenness. Without ever finding a true answer. And the story between Jesus and Peter, as it is foretold all the way through Matthew's account, is this, is that Peter, Jesus does not come alongside Peter and say, hey, listen, I know what it's like. I failed too. Jesus comes along and he says, like, I understand what you've gone through. Like, I truly do. As the Son of God, I understand what you've gone through and you failed. And I didn't. And that's what makes this Okay. See, it's Jesus' faithfulness that brings hope to Peter's life. It's Jesus' victory that brings understanding to Peter's life. In those moments, I don't just need a bunch of same circumstantial people who can understand where I'm coming through to give me sympathy. What I need, I need someone to rescue me. I need someone to help me out of this. I need someone to heal my brokenness. Not just get it. And that's who Jesus is to us this morning. How are you guys doing? What obstacles did you bring in this morning? What successes did you bring in this morning? Whatever it is you brought, I do believe that the person of Jesus Christ, as written in the pages of the Old Testament and fulfilled in his life under the power of the Holy Spirit, that his victory, that his faithfulness is where you need to find your greatest understanding and purpose in life. He is the one that brings meaning to the fact that even when I deny him or betray him, when I remain in him, I find peace. I find hope. I find, this is the best of all, I can find Jesus. Now last week, Ryan ended his message, a great message last week, by just kind of running through the book of Revelation. And as I sat there, I thought, hey, that's my book. I love the book of Revelation, and so I want to do something very similar to that because that is how John writes out his book, is tries to give us a picture of Jesus, not Peter, not Judas, but of Jesus who is the one who shows us victory in the midst of our temptation, in the midst of our brokenness. What keeps me from going down the road of Judas and finding peace and hope like Peter found? And the answer is Jesus. So John writes this in Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Grace to you, he's writing to a church, and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. From the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ. What picture does he draw of him? The faithful witness. 
the one who did not deny, the one who made the right confession. Who are you? It is who you say, the Son of Man who will be coming on the clouds with his angels. That's who I am. From Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 points out this, that those people who associate themselves with this faithful witness, that our testimony, when connected to his, is the greatest power we can have in this life. Talking about the persecuted, difficult, broken church, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. And Peter finds his hope in the fact that Jesus was faithful. Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. John encounters this angelic being that is this this powerful and this splendorous, this, this absolutely mesmerizing being. And his response to that is to fall down. Like if you were to see an angel in all of its splendor, what would you do? You'd want to fall down and worship it. Notice what the angel says, though. I love this. I fell down at his feet, at the angel's feet, to worship him. But he said to me, because worship's a big deal in the book of Revelation. You must not do that. John, get up, because God is watching. Like, I know I look amazing, but you should see the one who made me. I'm a shadow of the reality. John, you must not do that. Look at what the angel says. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers. And who are those people? All those who hold to the testimony of the faithful witness of Jesus. Worship God, he says. I love that reminder that we are those who hold our faith in connection with the one who is the faithful witness. So that when I stand boldly, I am faithful because he is faithful. And when I fail, I am grateful for his faithfulness. Listen, again, Jesus is a wonderful example to us. And in those moments of temptation and brokenness, in those moments like Peter faced, where we have to choose between being associated with Jesus or not, we can look to Jesus' example where he always was faithful. But the problem is, is sometimes I end up looking a lot more like Peter than Jesus. And what do I do then? You know what I do then? I remember Jesus. And I remember that he was faithful. And his faithfulness, Jesus' faithfulness, is so much more important than ours. Do you know that? You know that we're here not because of your faithfulness, but because of his? You know that we find meaning and purpose and forgiveness and hope, not because of our faithfulness, but his? See, that's the difference between Peter and Judas. Peter, somehow, by the grace of God, was able to see hope beyond his brokenness. Judas couldn't. My final text. I had to get outside of the book of Revelation because this is one of my favorite verses in Scripture. It's found in Hebrews chapter 20, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. It says this. Let us hold fast the confession 
the, uh, the swearing of allegiance to. The, hey, are you a follower of Jesus? Your accent betrays you. Your language betrays you. The, the way that you act betrays you. Are you actually a follower of Jesus? Are you a Christian? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Notice what the text says. For he who promised is faithful. Do you see it? Why do we hold fast? Because you know what? We are such an awesome group of people. I don't know if you know this, but we're the best group of people anywhere. Like we're the, we're the, we're the smart. I mean, a lot of times people want to try to invoke this, this team spirit mentality. Do you know who you are? Do you know how great you are? And in the back of our minds, we're going, yeah, I'm pretty messed up actually. Like no matter what you say, no matter what you say, I was, I was talking to a friend of mine, Tim, this morning, him and his son, who's 10 years old, so golfing matters when you're 10, and his son is golfing, and him and his, his buddy, are, they're in this golf competition this past week, and their coach kind of comes along, they're playing in a, in, a, in a team, and the coach comes along and says, hey, you do realize that if we, if we tie this last hole, we can actually like, tie them for the tournament. And one of the kids goes, I didn't come here to tie. Ooh. So I said to Tim, I said, hey, what happened? He goes, they tied. <laughs> I didn't come here to tie. I didn't come here to fail. What'd you do? Failed. Isn't that your life? What are you gonna do? You find a bunch of other people that kind of resonate with your brokenness? By the way, that's not all bad. I kind of like to call that church sometimes. You know what it's like to be broken? You know what it's like to fail? You know what it's like to have the best of intentions and then not measure up? I do. That's why I'm so glad Jesus didn't. Let us hold fast to our confession. For he, it says, look at this, for he who promised is faithful. Never forget him. Never forget him. Let's pray. And so God, I thank you for the reminder of this text and the power of the truth about Jesus that God, it is so easy for us to avoid what we need to deal with by talking about Peter's failure or Judas's death and um, completely fail to recognize that behind and under and through that entire narrative, is your son remaining faithful to the very end who will die for our sins and be raised back to life. And God, may we realize we are far more like Peter and Judas than anyone. And yet, Father, I guess what you also want me to know is that because of Jesus and because of what he did and what he accomplished, I am also much like him. And so I thank you. I do, I praise you for that truth. And I pray right now that those people who are overwhelmed, who are really struggling with the sin that has caught them, with the sin that is convicting them, I pray you would free them from another week of promising of doing better to a week of confessing their sins and their hope in Jesus. God, we need to be that kind of people.
God, when we ask you to make us better or stronger, I pray that would always mean more like your son. However we get there, I pray, Father, we do it by your strength and for your purposes. Free us from religious activities and give us Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. This time I'm gonna ask our elders and uh, as well as any of our Stephen ministers that are here, there'll be men and women up front to pray with you and to talk about the circumstances that you're going through that might be too much. We love you and we care about you. Um, please reach out to us. This might not be the context for you to share some of your brokenness. And so we just want you to know that we are here for you and with you in this journey. God bless. Pray that you have a great week in his strength and we will see you next Sunday.